Welcome to another session of the Wounded Angel Network series on the Radical Christ. Uh, you'll remember that we've been looking at, or we are looking at, the life of Jesus as a map, an archetypal map for every human journey. And we've divided it up like the rosary into different periods, or like the hero's journey with Joseph Campbell. There are certain periods of Jesus' life. And we've just finished the part where we looked at the preparation, the Annunciation, the birth. Um, then we looked at um, the dark side about the, um, the slaughter of the innocents. Um, and, and it struck me this week, uh, we were talking last week, remember, about how um, it must have lived with Jesus that he lived on, yet thousands of babies were killed in an attempt to kill him. But he survived, and we spoke about survivor guilt. And um, we were talking in that session about how often we are the ones who walk away, and, uh, and others um, suffer, and, and, and we make it. Um, it struck me in this week while I was reflecting on that theme that uh, I missed a major point and I want to just sneak it in here. That that truly also applies to the ecological crisis we are facing on the planet. It's the slaughter of the innocents. We continue to live and yet so many die and it's not just about us living. It's about us making a killing and living here that is really destroying the innocence of the, of the ecological um, situation. So I just wanted to slot that, that part in. We spoke about um, Jesus being found in the temple and we spoke about the mystery years that nobody knows about. And so we come today to the phase two, to the actual beginning of Jesus's ministry, his active public ministry. And it begins after those 18 mysterious years, which I suggested might have just been ordinary years with his family or might have been exotic years in India becoming a guru. We don't know. But today when we meet Jesus, we find him coming to John the Baptizer, um, who is a relative of his, probably a cousin. Uh, and, and John is like many people of his day. He's, he's one around many prophets who were basically itinerant preachers who went around teaching and speaking about um, what was to come. And not in a kind of foretelling the future, but in a foretelling. In, in other words, if we carry on like this, this is what's going to happen. Um, and, and Jesus comes at the age of 30, we are told, and he is baptized by John in the Jordan. And at first, John is reluctant to baptize him and says, I should be the one being baptized. And Jesus says, no, 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 you must baptize me. He immerses him in the water. And as he comes out of the water, this is the scripture. These are the scriptural accounts. There is the heavens opening. A light shines down upon Jesus. A dove descends and a voice speaks from heaven, which says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. That's the scriptural narrative. I want to begin, however, in our reflection reminding us that all of religion begins as human conversations and all of these archetypal images, these stories, have their best use for us as a map for our own journey. So we have to always look at it not literally because literally, literalism is blasphemy and kills the spirit of mythology, of the true truth behind the story that may not have happened. Um, I want to 
remind us, please let's always look at the allegory, the metaphor. What does this symbolize about the human journey? But before do we do that, I want to just locate us a little bit in geography because not everybody will be aware that Israel is on the right of any map you see of the Mediterranean. Um, its borders move a lot because of the politics of the area. Um, but there is this Jordan River and it starts up in the mountains and it goes literally north to south through the middle of Israel. Um, the first part of the river, if you look at the map um, that's on the screen, the first part of the river flows very quickly. You'll see the, the, the gradient of the river flows out of the mountains quite quickly into the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is a, or it's more of a lake, but it's called the Sea of Galilee, uh, is a very alive, vibrant um, fishing area because of the water that flows from the heights into um, into the into Galilee into the Sea of Galilee once it leaves the Sea of Galilee the Jordan River um, the, the the run from there to where it flows into the Dead Sea which is is a terminus it's a it's where the river terminates in this big sea which is very high in salt it's below sea level if you follow the blue line on the map you'll see that this it actually drops below the level of the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea is actually quite low down um, the the flow from from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea is much slower because the gradient isn't at high, as high as when the Jordan River comes out of the mountains. And so it's more of a meander. And he, this is an ancient picture which, uh, which leaves out sort of the modern ones. This picture was taken in 1935 and you can get a picture of the meander. Now it's in this yellow blocked section that's on the map that I showed you where you can see where most of the action in Jesus's life certainly and most of Israel's life happens in this lower section um, uh, because that's closer to Jerusalem, it's just closer to Bethany, um, it's closer to Jericho. Um, so all the, all the action really happens in this meander between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Um, and it's here that there is a site where people go today and they believe that, that this is the point where Jesus came to be baptized. Now, in the Old Testament, the, the Jordan uh, formed a very uh, important um, and, and symbolic role. Um, it appears a lot. Um, uh, for example, it's uh, Jacob crosses the Jordan when he's busy wheeling and dealing and cheating his brother Esau out of his birthright, you remember. He crosses the Jordan with all his cattle and his, cat, uh, his sheep and his flocks and his wives. And he goes um, and, and at the tributary of the Jordan, the river Jabbok, he sleeps and has this famous wrestling with God at night, which is another magnificent archetypal story. But, but there's, there's already with Jacob the Jordan is featuring. Um, there, then there's stories about um, Elijah and Elisha passing through the Jordan and how um, they are able to part the Jordan and walk through um, because there are no bridges in these days, right? This is before bridge building has arrived in, in human culture. Um, so, so if you want to cross the river, you either swim it or something miraculous has got to happen. And in this case, it's a miraculous um, crossing because the rivers part very much like the Red Sea and they go through on dry land. And then probably most famously, the Jordan is the the symbolic border 
um, that when the people come out of Egypt, when the Chapiru, the slaves, Chapiru, which is Hebrew, um, when the Hebrews come out and have um, consolidated themselves through all the tribes and the wandering of the 40 desert years, eventually come to cross. It's the crossing of the Jordan that is the, the line between the wilderness and the promised land. So when they cross the Jordan, they cross into the promised land. And that's the first allegory and metaphor I would like to just speak about in terms of the Jordan River as we come to this context of Jesus's ministry. So Jesus goes to the Jordan River. The Jordan River the prophets have crossed through, that wrestling Jacob went through. And remember that Moses was not allowed to cross. And so Moses is this enigmatic character who gets sent by God from a, by a mission where he encounters God as a, as a burnt out wreck of a man who is, is actually a murderer. He's murdered uh, an overseer, a slave overseer in Egypt, he's run away, he's in the back of the desert looking after his father, father-in-law sheep, not even his own sheep, in the back of the desert. Um, in, in, in Afrikaans we have a word, we call it Khramadulas. He's in the Khramadulas, um, the real backwards, when, when he has this encounter with God. God sends him, and through a lot of struggle, Moses brings the people to this border of the Jordan and they're going into the promised land and God says to him, not you. You're not going to cross over. And it just strikes me that, uh, that as a metaphor for life, um, that coming to a place where you can go no further um, is a very powerful, powerful time in, in one's life. Moses, who's done so much, doesn't get to inherit the promised land. I suppose the best analogy I can come up with around that sense of border that you cannot cross is, is from parenting. Uh, isn't that the truth about parenting, that we raise our children and then there comes the Jordan River moment when they cross over and we can't go with them, um, either because of immigration, that they're going to live in another country where we can't go, or simply because they are living a life and discovering a dream that we can't even imagine. The poet David White has got a beautiful line where he says, we need to realize as parents that we are only compost for the dreams of our children that we will never dream. We are only compost for a dream, the dreams of our children that we can never dream. So that's the sense of the Moses who watches uh, while the others inherit the promised land, after all that he's done. Um, so that's parenting. I think mentoring is very similar. You can take a person so far as, a, as somebody you helping and mentoring, and then you have to stand at the River Jordan and let them go and cross over, and, and you stay behind. I, I suppose it's true of, of all therapeutic relationships. I mean, one has to worry about therapeutic relationships that go on and on and on and keep a dependency going where the person, the client can't actually function without getting to a Jordan and turning around and waving goodbye to the therapist and then crossing the river. So, so Jesus comes to this border and this boundary. He comes to this place, the place where Moses couldn't cross. Jesus comes 
and is baptized. Baptism is an old ritual. I think as long as people have been around water, we have experienced the power of, of what it means to be washed, what it means to be cleansed. And of course that then finds its way into rituals. I've been privileged to be part of Hindu and Buddhist, um, particularly Chinese, Chan um, repentance ceremonies, where they simply just pour water. They don't put it on you, they just pour water. And that pouring of the water in the ritual is, is, is a metaphor and an identification for a new beginning. And you know, we have all these arguments in the church about how many times can you be baptized in infants and adults, and are you baptized, and can you be rebaptized? You know what, I'm, I'm not sure that's even important, because I know that there have been parts, times in my own life, when I've just wanted to hit the reset button, when, when my life has been a mess, and I felt messy, and I felt muddy, and I have felt mired by stupidity and guilt, and all the dark things that I've been immersed in. Sometimes then, just to go and have a shower, but a ritual shower where you allow the water to cleanse you, um, is a powerful thing. And so well, that's what John the Baptizer was doing. He was, he was saying to people, listen, we're on the wrong path. We've lost our way. It's time to get back to our values and get back to God. Back to God. <laughs> Bring your body, get back to God. <laughs> Come into the river and be washed. And so I want you to pick up this metaphor that people arrive with their shadow, with their darkness, with the weight of the world upon them, they goes into the waters of the Jordan River, this boundary river, and they are cleansed. And they come out after what is called a baptism of repentance. Now the word repentance is not a big heavy word. It simply means to turn 180 degrees. I was going in this direction. I was heading north and I repented. Now I'm heading south. It that's literally all the word means. It's metanoia, means to turn. 180 degrees go in a different direction. So these people come to John, are immersed in the river, and come out. Please make a note of where all the heaviness and the darkness is now. Symbolically, it's in the water, right? So then Jesus comes, the pure one, the incarnate one, the Son of God, remember, who left all the glory of God and is now from being projected out there as this perfect projection, so inaccessible. Jesus comes, grows up, incarnates, lives simply, grows up as a human being. And at this point, as an adult, at 30 years old, he comes to the Jordan. And what does he do? He immerses himself into those polluted waters, shadow polluted, sin if you want to use that word, which by the way only means to miss the mark, it's an archery term, sin is not this heavy thing, it's just mistake, shoot as a target, oops I missed, let me have another go, to sin is just to, just to, to miss the mark, but people have brought all their failures to John, all their darkness, and, and they've had them cleansed, washed away in the baptism of repentance that John was having, Jesus comes, and I would like to believe that an inverse process happens so that when he comes out of that water, he's identifying himself, having immersed himself with becoming everything and carrying all the darkness uh, that 
that humankind has carried alone for so long. Jesus comes and said, let me carry it with you. Let me share it with you. There's a very beautiful uh, practice, spiritual practice in Buddhism called Tonglen. And what Tonglen invites one to do, it's a very simple practice. On the in-breath, when you breathe in, you imagine all the pain and all the suffering of the world or of a particular context or even of a particular person. And in the in-breath, you breathe in that person's suffering. In other words, you share it, you immerse yourself, you take it into yourself. And then as you breathe out, you release all the goodness that you have, all the merit that you have, all the peace that you have in your life, you send that to the person or the context or the situation that you're thinking about. Tonglen, take in the burden, breathe out the blessing for the other one. Um, Stephen King, I think, I don't, I don't have evidence for this, but I have a feeling that even Stephen King in The Green Mile, that movie, um, hooked onto this idea of Tonglen, because there's a scene that I'm going to play you now where, where the, the actor, Coffee, is so, he's such a big man, such a huge man, and he wants to heal, and he's got this healing gift. And you see him breathe it in, and then stylistically, the filmmakers have him breathe the darkness out. It's that sense of immersion. Have a look at the video. So in a similar way, this immersion, acceptance, taking Jesus going into the water and then picking it up and carrying it reminded me of a, uh, something that I witnessed um, a number of years ago. I, I live at the seaside town, the southernmost city in Africa. And so south of Port Elizabeth is a vast ocean all the way to Antarctica. Um, and many years ago, about 100 kilometers off um, the coast, uh, a yacht got into deep trouble and was missing. And there was this whole search party was mounted days before cell phones. And I'll never forget a picture uh, on the front page of the morning newspaper where a, um, a, um, an aircraft, an Air Force aircraft, <laughs> let me get that right, and, and a, a search aircraft from, from the uh, Shackleton, from the Air Force, had been looking for this yacht and had found the yacht. And there was a photograph of the capsized yacht and the husband and wife in their life jackets clinging to the hull of the yacht um, and, what, and then waving as the Shackleton went around and a photographer took a picture from the plane. Now, the power of that image for me was at one level 
the yachts men and or women must have been delighted that this aircraft had seen them and gone around a few times and then the despair that that aircraft had to fly away because there was nothing the aircraft could do. The aircraft couldn't get down onto the water. They would have had to wait for shipping to be diverted to that coordinate where the plane had found them for the shipping on their level to come and fetch them. And that for me is such a beautiful image of how the sky god can circle around us and we can call out to the sky god. But the sky god can do nothing to save us from our shipwreck. That's where the incarnation, Jesus coming back into this carnation becomes powerful. Jesus is the diverted shipping who comes and who picks us up, who immerses himself in the dark waters, polluted by everybody's washing, accepts that all, and then breathes his blessing into our lives. Inspiration inspires us and gives us life. So we've got the border and the boundaries, how sometimes you get to a border and you cannot cross and you have to let the person go. Jesus comes and immerses himself and sometimes the most powerful things we can do is when we immerse ourselves empathically and feel the pain of the other and are immersed, taking the pain, giving out our blessing. That is what care and compassion is really about. And the last thing I want to focus on is as Jesus comes out of the water, there is the light and the, the, the symbol of the Holy Spirit, the dove coming down, and then these words, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Now, if I could translate that into modern English and not King James English, I would say the words were something like this. That's my child. I really, really, really like you. You're amazing. This is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. And I want to highlight for you that word beloved. Um, I'll show you a, a, um, a tattoo of it. Um, somebody's actually taken that word, that Greek word, agapetos. Agapetos. Now you know that there are three Greek words for love. There's actually four, but we won't get too technical. There's eros, which is sexual love. There's philos, which is brotherly love. And then there's agape. And agape is the beloved, um, loving, caring, wanting the best that parents, that love that a parent has for a child that will sacrifice everything, even standing on the riverbank and allowing the child to go to become compost for the dream of the child, um, that is agapetos, that is agape love, and, and that's the word that God uses, this is my agapetos. So I've been puzzling for many years now about why Christians, so many of them, have to pray to God all the time and, and, and they're constantly hearing from God. The Lord told me this, usually to come and tell me there's something wrong with my life. The Lord told me this, the Lord told me that, the Lord told, said, I'm going like, like, if God wanted to speak to me, why didn't he speak to me? So I went looking in, in the Gospels for how many times God actually spoke to Jesus and told him what to do. It's very, very rare, and I'll get to it a bit later in Jesus' life. But this is one of only two times 
that God audibly speaks to Jesus. So I couldn't understand why so many Christians need God to be talking to them all the time and finding them parking spaces and giving them messages. And then I realized that Jesus didn't need this neurotic constant chatter from God or constantly seeking God to say things to him because he had heard the most important thing that he could ever hear, that he was his divine father's agapetos, beloved. Unfortunately, those of us who have had fathers and mothers who aren't in heaven have probably never heard that very clearly. In fact, we've heard the opposite. We've heard not good enough, not smart enough, not thin enough, not pretty enough, not tall enough, not in whatever enough. And so we are constantly and neurotically looking for God to fill up those holes in our donut. But here's Jesus. You are my agapetos, beloved child. I really like you. So we could be saying that to others. I think we need to say it more often to each other. We don't have to have a tattoo, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm the agapetos. And the plural would be agapetoi. How would the world be if we could look at all of each other all the time and realize all of us, all of us, are the agapetoi of God? Thank you for your attention as we begin Jesus' ministry on the River Jordan, the boundary, the immersion, and the voice, agapetoi, of God. Thank you for your attention.